0: Well, let's begin tonight in Luke chapter 4. We could go to the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of Matthew, but the most extensive account of the temptations of Jesus is found in Luke chapter 4. So I'm not going to do a full exposition of this account. I'm just going to do an overview, and what we're after here is to see How Satan seeks to tempt us. When we are tempted, we are tempted by the enemy who appeals to basic desires within us. Those desires are not necessarily evil and they're not necessarily good. They are desires with which we all are born, and Satan comes after those desires. We want to see that and see not only how he goes about his seduction, we also want to see how Jesus responded to him because however Jesus responded to Satan establishes the pattern for how we are to respond to every temptation that we encounter. So Luke chapter 4, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So Jesus had just been feasting. He had just been feasting with God. And he had been feasting in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You are most ripe, and I am most ripe, for the devil's attack when things are going great in our lives spiritually. That's when he comes. When you think, man, I got this, I understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and I'm doing great right now, and you better watch out. You just better watch out, because he's coming after you. So Jesus was feasting on God in the power of the Holy Spirit, And the same Holy Spirit led him, the Gospel of Mark says, through him, compelled him into the wilderness. And for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. Remember, the work of the devil is to divide our wills. Satan doesn't mind us wanting God. He doesn't mind us wanting to please God as long as a major portion of our life is spent on pleasing ourselves and wanting what we want to fulfill those basic desires. So Jesus went from feasting to fasting. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, it is a conditional sentence. It suggests that Jesus may be the Son of God or maybe he isn't. If you are, prove it. One of the temptations that every believer will get from non-believers from time to time, is in the form of, if you are a Christian, prove it. And we we tend to take that too seriously. Our, our, Our contentment in Christ is not based on how other people see us or even based on what they say about us. Our contentment in Christ is based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to save us, that is, through his grace that we receive by faith that can't be attacked or assaulted by other people who simply want us to be questioning our salvation or our Asura. If you're the son of God, prove it. There's stones here. We're in the wilderness. There's stones everywhere. Take these stones and turn them into bread. Now, what Jesus does is what we must do. Jesus turned to Scripture, and being Jewish, the fundamental foundation for his faith was found in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the most important of those five, then and now, is Deuteronomy. So it's no surprise that Jesus turns to what we know as Deuteronomy chapter 8. He knew the word of God and he answered with the word of God. I want to assure you that given the days in which we're living, for you and I as a believer, we don't have a choice about knowing the word of God anymore. There was a time when many people who professed to be Christians came to church and worship God and didn't even open their Bibles during the week and didn't read their Bibles and study the Bible. if you're going to be faithful to Jesus now, you don't have a choice. Because the only answer we have to a pagan culture is the truth of God's word. And we better know the Word of God, we better know the flow of the Word of God, we better know the substance of the Word of God. So look at Deuteronomy chapter eight. <clears throat> Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 1. This is the context from which Jesus is addressing Satan. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do. That, the result is, if we obey God's word, you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you. One of God's goals with every child of his is to bring us to the place of humility. And you can be assured that if you belong to God, God will do whatever it takes to bring you to that place because he loves you. And if humiliation has to be the point of humility, he will humiliate you because he wants you to honor him and obey him. Jesus knew this, so he quotes from this context. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live By bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. The next verse is critical so that you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God. That's the bread know the truth of God, understand the truth of God, receive the truth of God, believe the truth of God, obey the truth of God. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. If you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The the issue is physical and material satisfaction. Satan wants you to believe that you're the center of God's world and that God wants to provide your physical and material needs. That's why he exists. So whatever you need, just ask him, and if he's God, he will provide for those needs. I shared tonight in First Family Ministry doing our devotional time in there that John Piper, in a book he wrote for pastors called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. One of the chapters in the book is on prayer. And in that chapter, John Piper says that one of the great issues in American Christianity is that we've forgotten that God gave us the gift of prayer not as a domestic intercom system, from which we on the first floor call up to the 10th floor and tell the bellhop God on the 10th floor that we need something on the first floor and to be quick about moving from the 10th floor to the first floor to bring it to us. God didn't give us prayer for that purpose. God God gave us prayer, and the image he uses is as a walkie-talkie on the battlefield. We're in a war. And we need grace and mercy and help to fight the battle. When we begin to focus on physical and material satisfaction, then Satan is building, beginning to build a stronghold in our lives. He is tempting and testing. We need to know Deuteronomy 8. We need to be able to say to Satan... I could have everything in the world, and if I don't have the Word of God, what have I got? Nothing. Life does not consist in the abundance of the things we possess. In the eyes of God, they mean nothing. We treasure them to our detriment. The second way Satan attacks is by getting us to think about and focus on our influence, our place of power. So look at what Satan does. Verse number 5, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory... For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, just look at what Satan says, because Satan is the master of half-truth. Now, Part of what he says here is true. God, by his design, has given Satan rule over this current world. That's true. What's a lie here is that Satan says to Jesus, to you, I will give all this authority. Why is that a lie? How do you give Jesus what's already his? It's not Satan's to give to Jesus. Jesus stands under the authority of God and before the world, Matthew 28, and says, All authority, where? In heaven and on earth, is given to me. No one can give him any power or authority. He has it all. We learned this morning as we started anew the gospel project that the, the world is made by the word of God. The word of God become flesh is the Lord Jesus Christ. The, wor- the world is made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. He's the center of it all. So Jesus knows what Satan is doing here. This is half truth. This is, this is a lie. If you will, if you will worship me, And Jesus answered him, verse 8. Jesus answered him, and he uses the opening phrase here in verse 8 that he used in verse 4. It is written. He repeats it here. It is written. It is one word in the Greek language that points to the inerrancy, infallibility, and absolute authority of what is written. So if you were to ask somebody, do you believe Jesus believed in the inerrancy of Scripture? Yes, here it is. It is written. Scripture stands eternally as the everlasting, inviolable Word of God. Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only, Shall you serve? Well, go back to Deuteronomy again. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Jesus doesn't have to go far away from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is the Shema. God giving his people their instructions for their families and for their gatherings. And then in verses in verses 10 through 15... Deuteronomy 6 says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. What happened at Massah? There's one of those places in the Bible we read through it and we, Massah, something happened at Massah. You need to know what happened there. It's tied to the first temptation. Because the first temptation was about physical and material satisfaction, and they didn't get what they wanted, so what did they do? They complained. Now, don't get all guilted up about this, but you know, when Satan gets you to have a confused view of prayer, and you're praying, and you're not getting what you're praying for, how prone are some of us in this room to point our finger of God and say, you're not listening to me. You're not answering my prayers. That's Massa. And there is a kind of so called Christianity in our culture that says that's all right. No, it's not all right. That's the work of the devil, that's how he divides our hearts and souls. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. And his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land. So the first temptation is about physical and material satisfaction, the second one is about having the kind of life where we have authority and power and our influence is pervasive and people pay attention to us, we have a good standing and a good place. Jesus says to Satan, don't don't test the Lord your God. Be content with where you are. Where you are is where God put you. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're not married, be content. If you're married, be content. If you're not a slave, be content. If you're a slave, where God has put you, be content. When our contentment and happiness in life depends on our place in life, we're in a dangerous position because we are opening ourselves to these seductions of Satan. The third temptation is about prominence. Now, Satan's getting desperate here. He's got somebody here on the line that he's never had before. He's ne- never dealt with someone like Jesus. So in a vision maybe or in some kind of visionary way, he took him, verse 9, he took Jesus to Jerusalem. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, now, and I notice every time... He's, he's doing this. If you are the Son of God, if. Maybe you are, I don't know. Maybe if, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, Lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now you can be turning to Psalm 91 because the devil knows the Bible. Believe me, he knows the Bible. That's why we better know it better than he knows it. Psalm 91 is what he's quoting. But let me tell you what uh, Satan's agents do. They quote the Bible in a way that suits whatever opinion they have that they want to argue. Whatever their theological perspective is that they want to support. Whatever doctrine they want to declare, they just use the Bible as kind of a compendium of text from which they choose so this is what Satan does, Psalm 91. It's a beautiful psalm. He quotes verses 11 and 12, and he quotes, he quotes verses 11 and, 10, 11 and 12, but he leaves out verses 9 and 10, and verses 14 through 16. Now, verses 11 and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. It's a text about the provision of God and the protection of God. But these these verses are framed by verses 9 and 10 and verses 14 and 15. Now look in your Bibles because the text here is, God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. But that is in the context of 9 and 10 and 14 and 16. Look at verse 9. What word, if you're reading from the ESV, what word begins it? Because it is a purpose statement. Look at verse 14, same word, because. What is going on here? God is telling us who receives the promise of 11.13. Who is it? Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. You live in the presence of God and you listen to the word of God and you learn the word of God and you live by the word of God. You have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague can come near your tent. You are protected by the presence and power of God because your life is held steadfast to the truth of God that is the word of God. Verse 14. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him, and I will show him my salvation." Now, it is clear in Psalm 91 that what is most important to God is that we love him and abide in his word and that we learn the truth of his word so that we can live according to his word. But when Satan seduces us, all he wants us to see is live however you want to live and do whatever you want to do and nothing bad will ever befall you. When COVID first came, I called my friend in Belarus. By the way, my friend in Belarus, just, he and his wife just became grandparents today for the first time. Their daughter, Paulina, gave birth to her first child, and her name is Dominique. And they immediately sent me a picture with a video, and they're so excited. So I called Sergey and I said, what are churches doing in Belarus? And he said, well, the churches that are led by younger pastors are not meeting right now because it's too dangerous but the older pastors in the older established churches they're simply reciting psalm 91 over and over again over and over again and what they're citing are these verses you will not strike your foot against a stone and the angels will provide for you and sergey said they don't read the whole psalm Because when you and I spend our time in the Word of God, the Word of God through the Spirit of God gives us wisdom, right? And that wisdom gives us what we need for decision-making. You read Psalm 91 out of context, and this is what you get. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. No evil will ever come your way. If you belong to God... Nothing bad will come your way. God will protect you. And if God doesn't protect you, then it's either your fault for not being good enough or it's God's fault for not being God enough. This is how Satan works. And there are people who will call themselves believers, even followers of Jesus who are taking a part of Scripture and using it as a proof text to establish the pattern for their lives without without understanding the whole counsel of God. If Jesus had listened to Satan, what Satan was saying is, if you will do what I'm asking you to do, you will never suffer. And he came for that reason that he might suffer for our sins. Aren't you glad? And you and I know this truth. We talk about this here. We know this truth. You're never drawn closer to Jesus than in your seasons of suffering. And it's in those seasons of suffering that you learn to delight in God, not that you are delighting in God for him to deliver you but your deliverance in the seasons of suffering is that God is with you and that's enough satan is slippery and Jesus shows us how to handle satan by knowing and loving the word of God and he shows us he shows us how to Respond to the word of God. Jesus answered him, verse 12 You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. He began the temptation season in the power of the Holy Spirit, he ended it in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he began his ministry. Now, that's where we begin because we must understand how Satan works in order to be able to see what he is doing with the eyes of faith when he comes. So, let's answer, let's raise this question and provide some biblical answers. What is Satan after in the life of the believer? Number one, he wants you to compromise your commitment to Jesus as Lord. That's very important to him. Satan would be delighted if every professing believer in America was Laodicean. If we were lukewarm. Come to church all you want. Get involved in as many Bible studies as you can handle. Do as many good works as you can do. But don't be so sold out to Jesus as Lord that you make yourself a nuisance with people because you want everybody to know Jesus the way you know Jesus. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 24. Let's go to Matthew 6 just momentarily. Jesus, in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, gives us what we know as the model prayer. Our Father in heaven, beginning in verse 9, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now, I believe one way to understand the model prayer in terms of what it means in real life is to keep reading the Sermon on the Mount. When you read the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus teaches, you see what He's asking us to pray spelled out in real life. Our Father... In heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, look down at verse 19. He tells us what this looks like. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Don't treasure the things of this world. Don't give in to the seduction of physical and material satisfaction as providing any meaning at all in life. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, nor where thieves break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a stunning statement because Jesus says it's real simple. Whatever you're treasuring reveals your heart. It reveals your will, it reveals your desires, it reveals. Your direction in life, and we've just prayed, Our Father in heaven, let your name be exalted above every name, set apart from every other name. We want to be owned by you, we want to treasure you. Then we're taught to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He spells this out the I is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. We must see clearly. And what we must see is that we live in the kingdom of this world and we're praying for the kingdom of God to come. We want God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, if we begin to enjoy our status in this world and the things of this world to the extent that we begin to compromise our commitment to Jesus as Lord, then the light in us is extinguished by the darkness of the evil that is around us and beyond us and in us. And then he brings it to this point of focus. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or God and material things. Satan wants you to believe that that's a lie that you can serve God and serve the things of this world all at the same time, and it doesn't diminish at all your devotion to Jesus. No one can serve two masters. Uh, Secondly, what Satan is after is to saturate your mind and your life with the ways of this world. He, He wants you to be captured and controlled by what the world offers us. John says we have enemies. The enemies are the flesh, the world, and the devil. The devil uses the ways of the world to appeal to the desires of our flesh. Thirdly, Satan wants us to create a context where everything that we desire from the world through our flesh, we interpret as being from God for our good. Now just think about something very simple with me. This is true for, I I would guess, almost every one of us in this room. How many of you, just make this real practical, how many of you, if I went to your house today, or you came to my house, would say, you know, I'll be glad when I get to the place in my life where I have enough stuff. How many of us already have way too much stuff? True? True? How did we get there? Maybe you've asked that. How did we get there? Because we can get focused so on what we call the good life that we forget the kind of life that God created for, Jesus redeemed us for. And we began to focus on all those good things and a lot of those good things that we thought we couldn't live without end up in a storage building somewhere and then they end up in a yard sale because we all give in to these seductions. What Satan wants to do, turn to James chapter 1, is to inflame our natural desires into a passion for things that do not build us up in relationship to God. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. No. For God cannot be tempted with evil. When it's evil, when it's not promoting and advancing the glory of God, whatever is not of faith is sin, So we can't say, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, this is how it works. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. And those desires... Begin as just neutral good desires, and then they get inflamed and inflamed and inflamed and inflamed. We're tempted by our own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What's Satan after in the life of every believer? He wants your life to begin to be dominated by fleshly desires to the point that you begin to forsake the Word of God and the people of God. You know that your life, my life, can begin to be so dominated by good things, good things, that we begin to lose a taste for God's Word and a desire to be with God's people. We can get so busy with so many activities that we want God's word. I don't think there's a believer in this room that doesn't hunger and thirst for God's word. But your life can get so crowded with so many things that you say something like, you know, I don't know when I would carve out the time. And there's so many. There's so many things that in and of themselves are are good, that if we pursue those desires without checking them, then they begin to dominate our lives and Satan's happy. I would hope that while I'm talking right now, you could think of your life and people you know who've gotten captured by things that are good that have over time, taking them away from the Word of God and the people of God. You know, when Satan takes a Christian away from the Word of God and the people of God, you'll never meet a Christian that doesn't justify that. You'll never meet one. Because we justify all of our choices. Even when they are in disobedience, if not defiance, of the word of god what satan does is he builds a stronghold in our hearts that stifles the spirit of god and strangles the life out of us look at second corinthians chapter 10 i've attached passages to all of these that i hope you'll go back and as you have time to spend some time with but I want to call attention to some of them. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 6. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you. That when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we are walking in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You wouldn't be destroying strongholds, spiritual strongholds, in your own life if Satan didn't put them there. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. You and I can make decisions that often take us away from the Word of God and the people of God, and we think they're right decisions. But they're raised against the knowledge of God, and Paul says you have to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And you have to be ready to punish every Act of disobedience when your obedience is complete. You have to be prepared as a believer to make war against the satanic deceptions and seductions that we all face. In order to make war, you have to soak yourself in God's Word. We have to bring everything we think under the word of God and ask God, is this in accordance with your word? Is this done in obedience to you? And you have to practice discipline. You know what it means for a lot of our families in our day? Families have to make hard decisions. Because our culture is carried along by activities and organizations and events that will consume your time and energy and take you away from the people of God. And we think that's just chance. We think that's just the way it is. No, that's Satan ruling over this current world system and drawing us away You know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of communities engage in sporting activities, for example, on what night of the week? What's a popular night of the week? Wednesday night. We think, well, they don't have any other choice. Yes, they do. And we say, well, we, we have to go along because we don't want to upset anybody. But what if we took a stand for the gospel? What if we said, being with the people of God? Enjoying fellowship with the people of God is far more important. I want you to turn because we're about to end. I want you to turn to Romans 1: 132. In studying this material, this has been this has been some of the hardest work I've done studying, I can tell you, because you're dealing I'm dealing with the devil's domain but turn to romans 132 at the very end of paul unfolding the wrath of god in a pagan society and that is every society outside the rule of god in this world and unfolding that he gets to the very last verse of chapter 1. And when I read this several weeks back, I was struck by this. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things, those who choose deliberately to live in defiance of the Word of God, And in open sin, he's speaking here primarily of sexual sin, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And let me tell you what hit me. When people are living by the standards of the world in open rejection of the Word of God and in defiance of the truth of God, they need friends. They need people who will join them, if not in their activity, at least in endorsement of their activity. They know because God has planted it in their hearts that they're under the judgment of God. They know that they're under the wrath of God. And they become missionaries. And they want to drag as many people in to relationship with them as they can. You know, unbelievers who are fighting against God will find people in their life who are fighting against God just as much as they're fighting against God and they will become friends with each other. And they will encourage each other. That's what Paul is talking about here. And Satan just fuels that. We need to be careful as believers We must go to people in sin and love them enough to share the gospel, but we must know where the line is drawn. And we must be willing to draw that line and draw it hard and fast in order that we might see them, by God's grace and time, come to faith in Jesus. Now, the next time we're together, I'm going to talk about something that's hard to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it because I think it's very important, how do demons, demons are real. Do you believe that? How do they operate in a culture? Demons operate differently in different cultures. Now, here's something I want you to think about. You and I, as believers, we can see how demons operate in other cultures. You know what we're blind to? How they operate in our own we need to have that exposed so that we can see how demons operate in our own culture. Well, thank you for being here. I never get as far on Sunday night as I hope or plan or think, and that's very frustrating. But maybe I have to trust God's will that we'll get there step by step and we'll keep learning together. Father, we thank you for this night. God, I pray that you would help us to have our eyes wide open to to the world of the demons and to see how dreadfully dark it is and how dreadfully disastrous it is, even for the church if we don't have our eyes open, our ears open. And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would know that even this week we're in a war. The war is real. And I pray that you would give us the faith to fight well, and to live well, and to serve well, and to love well, and to do so side by side. God, we need you. We need you desperately in these days, but we also need each other. In this war we're in, we don't have time to fuss and fight over things that don't matter. We need to be faithful with our eyes focused on Jesus walking forward faithfully to seek day by day to walk in obedience to you. Help us, Lord, to enjoy this day tomorrow that you've given us. And, and I pray, at least as believers, we would reflect on the joy of labor, that we would know that there are days when we don't like our work, But there's not a day when we don't delight or shouldn't delight that we have a job to do. So we thank you and praise you. Bless our week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.